The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome to Power Lunch, everybody, alongside Morgan Brennan. Welcome, Morgan. Good to have you with us. I'm Tyler Matheson, ahead on the program. A week to watch, a big one, another big Fed decision on deck. Last one of, really, the summer. A pause, maybe, until the fall, but anything can happen. Who knows? And all while investors try to digest a huge slew of earnings, everything from big tech to restaurants and industrials. Plus... The crusader against corporations. Lena Khan making ripples this year with some big antitrust suits under her belt and working to set stricter guidelines for mergers down the line. We're going to speak to a former DOJ insider about the FTC chair. But first, a check on the markets, which are largely higher today, uh, Tyler. We have the S&P up about half a percent. 4561 is the level there. The Dow right now up 224 points and the Nasdaq eking out a gain as well. But of course, this is all ahead of a very big week with a lot of market moving, potentially catalysts. Very, very much so between the Fed and all of the earnings that are coming out ahead. It is a big week for markets. Wall Street expecting earnings from some 150 companies in the S&P 500, about 40 percent of the Dow. will report their results this week. Apple, Microsoft, uh, Meta, all on deck. And while we await another Fed decision, uh, that is there uh, on Wednesday at 2 p.m. Let's bring in Jack Ablin, Crescent Capital's founding partner and CIO. Let's start with earnings, why don't we? Which ones will you be looking at most closely? And if er corporate earnings are, are coming down, as many predicted, why is the market going up? <laughs> That's, I'm scratching my head with that one, too, Tyler. Um, yeah, so I, I want to look at tech earnings. Uh, tech is really the only sector that's expected to be up year over year. I think consensus forecast has about 12.2% earnings uh, growth for the tech sector in the S&P 500. Meanwhile, the S&P overall is expected to be down about 10%. So uh, clearly, it's the tech sector uh, that I'm watching to see if it not just can deliver on expectations, but really needs to exceed expectations in order to justify the values that they currently have. So is so how do you explain the market's performance during this very nice month of July so far? Is it as simple as, well, if you look at the S&P 500, it's capitalization weighted, and the seven stocks that are the most heavily capitalized are the ones that are doing best? How do you explain the performance that we've seen? Yeah, I think it may be uh, investors are watching interest rates because really these are companies that you have to discount so far out mm -hmm. uh, in into the future that any change in interest rates or any expecta any expectation of change in interest rates will likely impact that sector the most. And given the fact that the uh, it appears that the Fed has won the war against inflation, uh, that perhaps investors are saying, okay. Uh, let's put you know that inflation issue behind us and let's look forward now. Yeah. I mean, along those lines, Jack, you could make the argument potentially that this is a market, at least right now, that is not trading on fundamentals. It's trading on narratives, um, to your point. And whether it's 
the Fed being close to done, if not already done with this hiking cycle, uh, the disinflation narrative that we see take root in the market and, and has certainly been a little bit up for debate. But you're but I mean, look no further than some of the data we got this morning to see that that it's happening. Um, how much does that shift as not only do we get earnings as the week goes on, but also as we do get the Fed and we do get Powell speaking? And oh, by the way, PCE later this week, too. You know, that's it, Margaret. I think you're right on point here. The fact is that earnings season forces us to look at valuations, forces us to look at fundamentals. And my view is, even if companies deliver, let's say just the S&P, even if the companies deliver on expectations and maintain the current expectations for the next four quarters, earnings and dividends, I still believe the S&P is about 11% overvalued. Now, you're right, a lot of it's pretty top-heavy, and I think a lot of the, the, the under-the-radar screen names can catch up. But I do think that we could see, a, you know, there is a risk that we could see a pullback in, in the S&P and the NASDAQ. And, and you think NASDAQ is even more overvalued than you think the S&P is, which leads you to some unloved sectors like REITs, which uh, a lot of private equity and hedge funds seem to be uh, dabbling in these days, and also dividend growers, name some. Sure. So, um, you know, a lot of these dividend stocks and the REITs are bond alternatives and investors decided, hey, why, why have a bond alternative when I can own bonds? Uh, but we like McCormick, uh, McCormick and Company, Spice Company um, has a, a very, uh, you know, it's, a, it's about a 2.2, I'm sorry, 1.8% dividend yield growing at 8.7% annualized for the last five years. We like Archer Daniels Mandolin, again, two food oriented companies, 2.2% dividend yield, high quality company growing at about 5.4% annualized. And then alternative energy next era, 2.5% uh, dividend yield growing at about 11.3% annual rate. If you go back in time and look at dividend growth relative to inflation over long periods of time, it's a great way of earning income from your portfolio. Got it. Do you stick with U.S. specifically or in a week where you have ECB and BOJ on top on tap as well and a dollar that has uh, at least it's I realize it bounced back a little bit last week, but it, but it has this year been weakening. Does that mean more opportunities elsewhere? Yeah, I think, Morgan, I think that there are huge opportunities overseas, particularly in developed international. You have um, a, international stocks in general trading at about half the valuation of the S&P 500. They're in about the 30th percentile of their historic, if its historical range, whereas the S&P is in closer to the 70th percentile of its historical range. And then take on top of that, the dollar is expensive relative to some key currencies. So for example, 20% overvalued relative to the euro, 40% overvalued relative to the yen. So now if you own as a U.S. investor international large caps, really there are two ways to win. Either the valuation catches up or at least closes that gap or that currency uh, picks up. All right, Jack, thanks very much. Always great to see you, sir. All right. Thanks, Tyler. Jack Ablin. Well, let's drill into some of these stocks set to report this week. Obviously, big tech is always in focus. But what are some of the other key sectors? First, restaurants, Chipotle, McDonald's, all on deck. Many analysts have been expecting a consumer spending slowdown, but maybe that's not the case. Kate Rogers has more. Hi, Kate. 
Hey, Morgan, we started the earnings parade with Domino's this morning and many more to come this week, as you mentioned, including Chipotle, Sweetgreen and McDonald's, which will give us more color on the consumer. And while menu inflation at restaurants is, of course, outpacing inflation at grocery stores, consumers are continuing to dine out. That's a trend that should continue this summer as tourism picks up. Now, while the traditional thinking may indicate consumers are cautious or price sensitive, which would boost stocks that offer lower prices for diners like McDonald's, Wendy's and Yum, those names are some of the weaker performers on the year. They're up between 8 and 20 percent. Wendy's is actually lower on the year. The best performers of the year so far are actually those with a higher ticket cost for consumers. Shake Shack, Sweetgreen, and Chipotle. And interestingly enough, the casual dining names are outperforming the fast food stocks. Darden, the parent of Olive Garden, Texas Roadhouse, and Blumen Brands, parent of Outback Steakhouse, are all up about 20 percent year to date. While many of these names dipped into takeout and delivery during COVID, they're most associated with that sit-down, dine-in experience that tends to be a bit pricier. And finally, we'll turn to Pizza Domino's this morning reporting mixed results. They said delivery business continues to be challenged in the U.S. Domino's up around 12 percent year to date. Papa John's is just flat. Pizza, of course, one of the cheapest ways to feed a family if you are choosing to dine out these days. Guys, back over to you. A lot of pizza in the Brendan Cacciati household, <laughs> uh, Kate Rogers. It's very popular with the toddler set. Um, I, I, I do, I do want to go back to Domino's, though, because part of what pressured the top-line miss in Domino's was food disinflation and the way that plays out between the company and its franchisees. Is there an expectation that as we see uh, some of these costs associated with some of these food commodities, that that could be a situation that plays out in some of these other names, too, either positively or negatively? Uh, we'll see. As you mentioned, Domino's obviously a supplier to the franchisees, so that's great for franchisees that costs are a bit lower. Uh, for Domino's, not so great because they're the supplier. We have to see what some of these other big names mentions in terms of inflation, but it's interesting because we talked about both McDonald's and Chipotle, two very different price points for the consumer, but both mentioned that they weren't seeing too much price resistance. Again, McDonald's being a little bit cheaper, Chipotle's being a little bit more expensive. This was last quarter, uh, but neither really seeing pullback and not a lot of trading down away from a Chipotle to a McDonald's. All of these businesses seem to be pretty stable. And as mentioned, a lot of the casual dining names, which are more expensive, especially if you're feeding a family, those stocks are doing really well. And those companies also were performing quite well last quarter. So we'll have to kind of see how inflation weighs on all of these names heading into the back half of the year. But everyone seemed quite optimistic last quarter. So I'll be watching to see if that trend continues this quarter. All right. We know know you'll bring us all of the details as those reports (laughs) uh, roll out. Kate Rogers, thank you. Let's also take a closer look at some of the big industrials that are reporting results this week. On tap tomorrow, we have General Electric that's benefited from its healthcare spinoff in January with more spinoffs to come of its remaining energy uh, business. What it will leave is the aviation business the beginning of next year. In the past 12 months, that stock has gained almost 110%. Check out that chart largely outperforming big tech names like Apple and Alphabet. Joining me now to preview is Dean Dre. He covers electrical equipment in the multi-industry sector at RBC. Dean, it's always great to see you. Want to get your take uh, on GE ahead of results tomorrow. I mean, is this really just all about jet engines and the aviation recovery that's playing out right now? Yeah. Hi, Morgan. It's great to be with you. Yes. Um, GE has been a story stock, a deal stock for really ever since Larry Culp arrived. And, you know, we're coming down to the wire now. Uh, it's two businesses, Vernova, uh, the power and renewables, and the aviation business. Uh, that's what it, most investors are focused on, the aviation business. Uh, that's going to be RemainCo. Uh, that's where the growth is coming. Uh, that's where we see valuation. Uh, and the story is playing out very nicely. And the stock has been 
real strong this year. It's up almost 70% year to date, and we still see upside from here on a sum of the parts basis. Which is exactly my next question for you is, do you buy at these levels or do you wait for a pullback? Oh, we still like it here. Uh, Everything seems to be on track. We got an update on June 20 from GE at the Paris Air Show. Uh, The supply chain issues uh, look to be favorable now. uh, And we think it's a good time to be an owner of GE. What's left of GE? Just the aviation, basically? Yeah, so it's two businesses. It's two segments. Vernova, which is uh, the power and renewables business, Uh, That's slated to be spun off uh, in early 24, and that will leave aviation as Remainco. So is this then a a lesson in financial engineering or corporate management or both? Tyler, it's all of the above. Uh, We'll also call it, we've been talking about this for five years, about this whole trend towards uh, the demise of the conglomerate, Mm -hmm. the urge to demerge, portfolio simplification, addition by subtraction, investors reward companies with a more focused portfolio. So the timing was perfect for GE to simplify the story, and now it's down to its lowest common denominator, aviation. Mark my words, long after I am retired, GE will re-conglomerate, as will many of those conglomerates. The investment bankers will go to them, and they will say, you're going to be stronger with these other bolt-on components attached, and watch, in 20 years, it'll look a lot like the old company, I bet. Tyler, it's going to happen a lot sooner than that. And <laughs> Love we'll that. We'll pivot from saying urge, we'll be back to an urge to merge. Yep. Uh, and we're getting pretty close to it. I think uh, that pivot will happen a lot sooner than your 20-year mark. Oh, well, maybe I'll still be <laughs> here then. Who knows? Uh, I do want to ask one more question. Another blue chip that's reporting tomorrow morning is 3M. They have not succumbed to the urge to demerge quite the urge to demerge uh, quite quite as aggressively as, as some of these other names that, that we've talked about, like GE. Uh, your thoughts on that company, especially since the stock has underperformed over the past year plus? Yeah, Morgan. So, yeah, there's 3M has really fallen out of favor. Uh, it's no longer the blue chip that it once was. We do have a sell rating. Uh, Uh, The whole earnings story is completely overshadowed by litigation on two fronts, the Mm -hmm. PFAS and the combat arms. Uh, And really, that has, um, I think, rendered the stock uninvestable at this stage. All right. Dean Dre, thanks for joining us. That's about as clear a position as you can come by. Uninvestable. That's pretty firm stake in the ground there for 3M. All right, coming up. Fighting for control. The FTC and the White House ramping up their antitrust fights this year. And despite more guidelines and suits, companies are not backing down. But neither is Lena Khan. We'll discuss next. Plus, technical support for meme stocks. Many of those names climbing over the past month. And based on analyst targets, they could have even more room to run. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. 
Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. All right, everybody, welcome back to Power Launch. As the FTC and the DOJ release 13 new proposed guidelines for mergers, Federal Trade Commission Chair Lena Kahn speaking to the Economic Club of New York not long ago after losing two key antitrust cases. Here's what she had to say about how the losses affect the FTC's strategy moving forward. We in federal court have lost two merger cases. Um, we have brought somewhere between, you know, 13 and 20, depending on how you count, uh, and have gotten abandonment. So in the scheme of our merger enforcement program, losing two uh, is okay. Uh, obviously, we want to bring, we only bring cases that we think we should win, that we can win. Every time we have that type of setback, we look very closely at, you know, where could we have done better, where did we fall short, and use that to inform our approach going forward. Joining us now to discuss is Bill Baer, former assistant attorney general for the antitrust division at the Department of Justice and a visiting fellow at Brookings. He's the only person to have led enforcement at both antitrust agencies of the FTC and the DOJ. Bill, welcome. How are you? Good to see you. Thank you. Great to be here. What do you what do you what is your response when you hear Lena say, hey, we've we've won more than we've lost. But the two losses were pretty significant ones involving uh, big companies that everybody knows. Yeah, I I think she's right that, you know, bring cases um, that uh, uh, that you think you're going to lose. You think you've got a factual basis for it. But um, many of the other challenges they brought have resulted in companies saying, we give up. We're not sure we can win in court. And so those numbers are relevant to an overall assessment of how well she's doing at the FTC and and her counterpart, Jonathan Cantor, is doing at DOJ. As you step back and you look at uh, Ms. Kahn and Mr. Cantor's uh, approach to antitrust, something you know better than maybe anybody in the country, what would you say is being articulated about their approach? Is it different from the way it was? Are they going after qualitatively different kinds of combinations or concerns uh, or what? How would you, what, what is the, the Biden administration, uh, the regulatory philosophy that is holding true today? That's a great question. I, I think to try and put it simply, they are saying that over the last 40 years, antitrust enforcement has gotten too conservative. And what's happened as a result, we have more industries that are more concentrated, less competitive, and that uh, does not serve consumers. It doesn't serve competition. It doesn't serve workers well. So they are going back to basics. These new draft guidelines say, you know, if two companies are merging, let's look at how they interact today and what's gonna be lost in terms of competition if this merger goes forward. So it is a more realistic, less dogmatic, less theoretical and more practical approach to making sure consumers, workers, and the overall American economy benefits from competition. 
So if you're, you're reimagining or revisiting or expanding the definition of antitrust, how much of that is actually the jurisdiction of the FTC and the DOJ versus Congress basically well, coming I, with new legislation? Sorry to interrupt you there. It's um, what the antitrust enforcers under Biden are saying is we need to go back to what the statutes actually say when it comes to mergers and acquisitions. Is there a tendency, a risk, that a combination, you know, a live nation ticketmaster will end up harming consumers and competition. That's what the Clayton Act, which is the merger statute, says. It's taking a look at risks that things will get worse. And it involves a prediction. And the Chicago School of Economics has, has basically taught us that, you know, uh, let's just tighten the standard, require the government to prove a certainty rather than a risk or a tendency. So I don't think we need new law. We just need more fair application of the law that Congress wrote. So what is your takeaway then of what we've seen play out in the U.S. court system? Because I realize there's still a European and U.K. specifically regulatory situation going on, but specifically in the U.S. court system around Microsoft and Activision. Well, first of all, you know, the FTC was unable to pre prevent the acquisition from taking place. But in the course of the US investigation, the European investigation, and the UK investigation, Microsoft effectively conceded that without commitments, it had both the incentive and the ability to, uh, to favor itself uh, and its gaming system over its competitors. So Microsoft was forced to make ironclad commitments to make games like Call of Duty available to its competitors. So while the government did not successfully block the thing in its entirety, it extracted concessions, which potentially, hopefully, uh, will, will allow Activision games to continue to be widely available. Um, so, so the interpretation and enforcement we're seeing now of antitrust and sort of this rethinking uh, or back to basics, I guess, around antitrust and its application in, in the market in real time right now. How sticky does it become if this administration logs some wins uh, and, cast or, and or casts the pall over companies that maybe under different administrations in the past would have been looking to merge and are now not doing that? How sticky does that become for future administrations and future regulators uh, over time? Well, I think I think it becomes sticky if the courts go along with it. Okay. Right. We are a, a common law system and uh, we rely on judicial precedent. And to the extent the courts agree that things are not perfectly OK in the U.S. economy, that consolidation is a problem, I think that will stick. Uh, a number of years ago when I was at DOJ, I gave a talk where I said there are just some deals that should never make it out of the corporate boardroom. And what you are seeing, I think, is companies as a result of a more progressive enforcement strategy, taking a hard look at whether going after a particular competitor uh, is, is worth the risk of uh, the time and commitment. And that is, I think, a good thing. Uh, we're going to see less consolidation and more competition. I don't know all of the details of the Anheuser-Busch Modelo uh, case, 
But I'm wondering, very quick answer if I might, Bill, uh, would Modelo ever have been the number one beer in the United States if that uh, combination or deal had, had been allowed to proceed? Absolutely not. Anheuser-Busch wanted to buy Modelo brands because they were competing effectively with the Anheuser-Busch brands in the U.S. And by preventing that from happening, Modelo has succeeded and consumers have benefited. And as a beer consumer, I've benefited. (laughs) Bill, thank you very much. Bill Baer, we appreciate it. Thank you. Well, Chevron releasing some preliminary earnings highlights, and they're looking good. But the real focus for investors, the company keeping CEO Mike Worth on as CEO and waiving its mandatory retirement age to do so. We've got those details next with shares up 2.5% right now. Plus, further ahead, the Barbenheimer box office, living up to its name, bringing in north of $200 million combined. We'll be right back. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Welcome back to Power Lunch. Stocks are higher again today, but bond yields rising as well. Let's get to Rick Santelli in Chicago for more. Hi, Rick. Hi, and indeed, we see that the short maturities, like two- and three-year notes, are powering yields higher. We had a two-year note auction today, the highest yields, by the way, since 2007 at an auction. And as you look at an intraday, you can see how it's climbed all session. And what's very fascinating is if you put up a three-day chart, we have cleared the zone on the short maturity two-year note yields, as you see there. But if you keep that same three-day chart and move further down the curve towards the 10-year maturity, you can see we're close, but we have not broken above the recent range, right around that 386, 387 area. Traders are monitoring that. Of course, that means we're getting more inverted. And not only are we getting more inverted twos to tens, but we're also seeing a widening between our yields and European boon yields. As you look, we are at the widest of the year, right around 145 basis points, so near 1.5% wider. And when you're wider at this point, after central banks have definitely moved down the path of tightening rates, raising rates, you can see what it's doing to the dollar index. Here's a dollar index one-month chart, and we've turned the corner. Despite all the big legendary names that have been shorting the dollar, it certainly seems, though, handicapping these yield differences is certainly showing up in preference of investors towards the greenback. Tyler, back to you. Rick, thank you very much. Rick Santelli, uh, oil climbing today along with industry giant Chevron. Pippa Stevens here with the details. Hi, Pippa. Hello. Well, starting here with oil, it is at a three-month high, and it's on pace to close above a 200-day moving average for the first time in almost a year. So that's lending some technical support on the fundamental side. There is some you know, data showing that those OPEC production cuts might now start uh, actually weeding through into the price of oil. Then we've also got strong gasoline as well as jet fuel demand. But the big talker today is Chevron. 
They announced yesterday some highlights from their Q2 results with full results slated for this Friday. They also announced some management shakeups. The CFO will retire next March. And then Chevron also waived the mandatory retirement age for CEO Mike Worth, meaning he's sticking around for a little bit longer. And I think one thing that's interesting about this is that Chevron and energy companies more broadly have a lot of cash on hand right now. And Mike Worth has overseen three deals over the last three years, including most recently PDC Energy, which is expected to close next month. And so with all of these calls for more consolidation in the space, having someone at the helm who actually has the industry know-how and these deals under his belt was, you know, perhaps one of the motivating factors to extend his tenure. All right. And of course, we're seeing investors react positively to this news with shares up 2% right now. Pippa Stevens, thank you. See, we got the green memo (laughs) today. Well, let's get over to Contessa Brewer now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Contessa. Morgan, thank you. The deadline just passed for Texas to remove a 1,000-foot buoy border wall dividing the Rio Grande River. The Justice Department threatened to sue the state if Texas Governor Greg Abbott did not commit to its removal. The governor claims Texas has the authority to defend its border and is stepping up to address the migrant crisis. But the DOJ calls that buoy wall inhumane and illegal. The State Department says there's been no new communication between North Korea and the United Nations Command about that American soldier who crossed over into North Korea last week. That counters an earlier comment from the U.N. deputy commander in the region who said talks had started about Private Travis King. According to U.S. officials, North Korea acknowledged a message the day King went into the country, but nothing since. And the IRS is putting a stop to a decades-long practice of unannounced visits to homes and businesses. The agency says it's part of an effort to keep workers safe and undermine scammers who pose as agents. It will instead send letters to people to schedule the meetings, and the change, we're told, takes effect immediately. Morgan? All right. Contessa Brewer, thank you. Ahead on Powerline, shares of AMC surging after a shocking court ruling against its ape stock conversion plan, putting the measure on hold. That story when Power Lunch returns. Welcome back, everybody. We may be seeing a return of Mementum, the poster child of the group, surging today after a judge blocked the company's plans to convert its so-called ape shares into common stock. Christina Partsenevlis, who's been following this story, has more. Christina. Well, you'd think maybe Barbie or Oppenheimer would play a bigger role in AMC stock surge, but it's all about court drama between shareholders and management. On Friday, a judge blocked AMC's plan to convert its preferred equity units, also known as APE, A-M-C, A-P-E, into common stock based on the belief that the conversion deal was just too comprehensive. Common shareholders would have to give up some legal claims if the conversion occurred. Over 3,000 individuals sent in letters to sway the judge's opinion, presumably out of concern for further share dilution. AMC shares skyrocketed on the news uh, post-close on Friday. That was also helped further by short covering because many investors have tried to take advantage of the price difference or price arbitrage between Ape and AMC shares, which means going short AMC and long Ape. And that's definitely a tough position to be in today. 
However, CEO Adam Aaron is concerned. He took to Twitter yesterday to almost beg for help by writing, quote, AMC must be in a position to raise equity capital. I repeat, to protect AMC shareholder value over the long term, we must be able to raise equity capital. And that's because AMC needs to needs the conversion to boost liquidity and reduce debt after theaters were closed during the pandemic. Aaron says they could run out of cash next year or by 2025. So AMC currently has filed a new, more narrow version of the settlement just over the weekend, which it hopes will address the court's concerns. Worst case, though, if the company can't convert these ape shares back into AMC common shares, AMC might be forced to issue even more ape shares to cover its upcoming cash requirements. And then this whole dilution cycle starts all over again. Guys? It it is going to be quite the case study in terms of how all this plays out, Christina, Not to mention the fact that you could see long-term impact from some of these strikes, these Hollywood strikes, too, which I think uh, Aaron is concerned about. Christina Partsonevelis, thank you. Speaking of the meme stocks, CNBC Pro out with a new screener, looking at some of the run-ups in those names this month, many of which still have some room to run. That's according to to Wall Street. While others have already seriously surpassed expectations, so here to chart some of the names is Jessica Inskip, Director of Product at Options Play, joins us right here. Jessica. Uh, let's talk about AMC. Yeah, so AMC from all fronts, I see a very clear downward trend. So very bearish. We're zooming in on a daily chart because it's a short-term traded security. So we yeah. need to talk about those short-term trading targets. That 200 daily moving average, that is your clear downwards trend. But you can see it is not enough even if you surpass that because there is a series of lower highs constantly. So what I need to see is that that short-term resistance of about 611 right here to be a new higher high, so overcoming those lower highs in order to have more of a bullish stance. So that's going to take some time, but I would not touch this security until I have sustained closes above this line. Which kind of speaks to how much the stock moves and how big those moves have been. The fact that you could have a 30% plus gain today and it's still not even remotely close to where we were at the beginning of the year, to your point. Absolutely. All right, let's talk a little bit about Tesla. This is another name, obviously mega cap name, but very meme-tastic as well. Your thoughts from the technical standpoint. So Tesla, I actually really love this chart. It's a beautiful chart. From what I'm looking for when I'm focusing on a bullish trend for a security, I want to look at the weekly moving averages. The 200 weekly moving average gives me indication of the bullish overall larger trend. So that's sloping upwards. In addition to that, I look at the 26 and 40 because that's two and three quarters. And we look at the market from a quarterly perspective. So I want to see the prices moving upwards in addition to the security being above that. And those series of lower highs or higher highs, I want to see it switch over, which I see here. So what I was looking for in AMC, Tesla has done, but on a weekly level, which is more broad-based, which means it has more strength to that trend. So therefore, I'm targeting about 313, which is about here. And that's a zone of what I'm going to call a large area of supply. And that is going to be your shark in the water, essentially, because it's a large area of supply where I need to see there's a lot of people who own that security. There are consistent prices. It has become a form of resistance here, a form of support here, a form of resistance here. So therefore, is this demand going to overcome the supply that I see? Are the sellers going to leave the market? That's where the supply is. It's consistent of sellers. I want to see them leave the market. But that's a great target from here. 313, 
Once we see it consistent closes above 313 on a weekly basis, then we have another really great bull case. Yeah, and of course, this is one of those names that doesn't always trade on fundamentals or analyst upgrades or downgrades. So the technicals matter perhaps even more here. It absolutely uh, does. Okay, let's talk about Delta Airlines, which is a name that reported very strong er earnings earlier in the month. What are you seeing in this chart? So Delta Airlines is, I want to call it consolidation. So same type of view. We have the 240 and 26 weekly moving average. You'll notice that there was a crossover in the 40 and 26 moving averages are sloping upwards. So that gives me an indication that we're in a bullish trading cycle. However, that 200 weekly moving average, it's still down. I want to see that move start to move upwards. And I still need that consistent close above those old lower highs, which is right here around 52.17. So once it reaches that point, now we're in an area of consolidation. According to the Dow theory, once we have an area of consolidation, then that's when we really move up into a bullish cycle. So for Delta, I'm calling that sideways short-term target of 52.17, which is going to create the top of a new trading range. And if we see consistent closes above that, then I would reconsider a bullish case. All right. So perhaps poised for a takeoff here. Perhaps. We'll have to see. Yes. Okay. Jessica Inskip, thanks for breaking down the technicals with us here. Thank you, Morgan. And the machines worked. You did it beautifully. Oh, thank I know. You. It was you really drew, good. Drew very I nice mean, straight lines, too. Yeah, I don't think I could do that. Yeah, I was going to say before, these things <laughs> never work, so just be ready. But it, you made it work. We had a great team. <laughs> All right, good. Uh, coming up, a battery breakthrough, the cutting-edge technology that could help produce big amounts of energy but with a much smaller carbon footprint. Time for a clean start when we return from this quick break. Welcome back. The market for vehicle and home batteries expanding exponentially, but there is another battery opportunity that is just barely getting off the ground. Diana Olick joins us to explain in her continuing series on climate startups. Hi, Diana. Hi, Tyler. Yeah, heavy industry requires a lot of energy, and reducing its carbon footprint is a tremendous task. One way it can be done, large-scale batteries that go beyond what vehicle and home battery systems are capable of. Textiles, food, chemicals, cement, all the things we make require massive amounts of energy for power and heat. Factories can use energy from wind and solar, but since those are intermittent and not always nearby, they require large batteries that are both difficult and expensive to produce. Now, companies like Form Energy, Atmos Zero, and a startup called Antora are tackling the technology. We've developed a new class of battery, which is a thermal battery, which stores energy as heat instead of as uh, electrochemistry or electrochemical bonds. And because of that, we're able to store energy for much lower costs. It works like this. Electricity from wind and solar are run through coils, like in a toaster, to heat solid, well-insulated blocks of carbon to over 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit, storing a tremendous amount of energy. The blocks can be shipped cold in a battery module to the factory where they're then heated. They're now being tested at an electric company in Fresno, California. We're just getting started and the cost to produce these are still relatively high, uh, but long term, these can be an order of magnitude less expensive than a conventional battery such as lithium ion. Clean energy is, of course, a top priority for climate investors, and this one could be particularly lucrative. We think it's a multi-trillion dollar market opportunity that addresses 40% of all industrial energy. 
Um, and it's because Antora is one of the few companies that we're working with that has proven technology and is ready to scale incredibly quickly. Along with Breakthrough Energy, Antora is backed by Lower Carbon Capital, Shell Ventures, BHP Ventures, Grok Ventures, and Trust Ventures. Total funding so far, $80 million. Years ago, this field was basically empty, but now there are about a dozen thermal energy storage companies using either sand, rock, brick, or other types of ceramic to store energy as heat. It just shows that there is a lot of momentum in the space, which is good because the industrial space is huge. Back to you guys. And we, you have been reporting on that. That was, that was great, Diana Olick. Thank you for joining us. More than 30 years have passed since the landmark Americans with Disabilities Act was signed into law, and yet decades later, just a fraction of employees with disabilities disclose them to their employers. We're going to dig into why and how corporate America can help change that when PowerLunch returns. Welcome back. This week marks 33 years since the landmark American with Disabilities Act was signed into law. And while most corporations encourage workers to voluntarily disclose a disability, a new report found only a fraction do. Sharon Epperson is here with more on why that is. Why is that? Well, Morgan, you know, of the 485 companies that were recently surveyed by the nonprofit Disability Inn, 93% of them encourage employees to confidentially self-identify as having a disability. But only 4.6% of U.S. employees at those firms are disclosing a disability to their employer. Meanwhile, another survey found the prevalence of people with disabilities in the workplace is about 25%. Now, many employees may stay silent, fearing stigma or losing out on a job or promotion. But to Rob Koch, who is deaf and a key manager at a technology consulting firm, the first hat hurdle is actually getting in the door. A lot of hiring managers typically like to hire people that are similar to them. So that's the challenge that we have to overcome. HR leaders say company-wide initiatives to increase awareness about disabilities can make a difference. We'd be excluding a huge pool of potential employees if we weren't focused on that population and not just bringing them in the door, but making sure they had the resources and the comfort that they need to feel included and want to stay. Now, after an awareness campaign at the New Jersey-based energy company PSEG, the percentage of employees who self-reported a disability tripled. So making it accessible, making people feel like they are a part of the organization included no matter what, seems to definitely encourage other employees who may not have said anything yet. All right, we've got about a couple minutes left in the show, maybe three, uh, and a few more stories you need to know about, so let's get right to it. First, the Barbenheimer box office not disappointing at all last week. We talked a lot about the hype around Barbie and Oppenheimer and whether they would live up to the hype. Well, it seems they did. Warner Brothers' Barbie tallied around $155 million during its first three days in theaters. Oppenheimer around 80 million, the total 235 million. We got a special guest to help chat this one out. That would be Julia Borston. Julia, it's not just U.S. and Canada box office. It was big. It was global box office as well here. That's right. And I have to say, I'm going to actually update your numbers. 
The, the estimates for the weekend were originally $155 million for Barbie. They added $7 million to that because so many people came out to see the Barbie movie on a Sunday night. So this has really been an unexpected and unusual phenomenon to have a double feature that an estimated 200 million people bought tickets to see these two films as a double feature. Um, certainly nothing that either filmmaker could have intended when they first conceived of these films years ago, um, but really a, a confluence of a number of factors that really shows interest in getting back to theaters. And now there's some hope that there will be momentum behind this. You had unprecedented yeah. numbers of people going out to the theater this weekend. They all saw trailers, which means they might be encouraged to come back and go to the movies. How um, much did Hollywood need this? How much did Hollywood would need this, Julia? It needed it a lot. Now, we look at the summer box office period, which starts May 1st up until now. Up until this past weekend, the summer box office starting May 1st was down 7% from the mm. year ago period. But after this weekend, that same period is now up 1% from the year ago period. So this could be this could be a turning point, Tyler. Okay. We'll have to see how all the strike stuff plays into yep. future content pipeline, too, just as maybe we hit this pivot point. Julia, next up, bye-bye birdie. Elon Musk officially rebranding Twitter to X, ditching the iconic bird logo on the platform, or at least starting that process. CEO Linda Yaccarino saying it will transform into an everything app centered in audio, video, message, video, messaging, and banking. Elon Musk said tweets will also be called X's moving forward, but no word if that's actually official yet. I mean, this does feel like maybe what Musk has been saying he was going to do. Musk really likes the letter X. I'm not really <laughs> sure about the concept. Are you Xing instead of tweeting? Do you post an X? I'm, I'm not sure how that works. So I'm waiting for more guidance on that one. But I just want to read a line from Lindy Acarino's uh, memo that she sent to employees. She said, our usage is at an all-time high, and we will continue to delight our community with new experiences in audio, video, messaging payments, saying they're going to create a local, a global marketplace for ideas, goods, services, and opportunities. So I think the thing to watch here is the role that commerce and payments will play in this new X app. All right, Julia Borston, thanks for joining us. Major averages are higher right now. Yeah. I'll, I'll see everybody on Closing Bell Overtime yeah, in one hour. Later in an hour, right? Good to be with you. You Morgan. too. Thanks for watching Power Lunch, everybody. Closing Bell starts right now. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com.